0: It's great to see you again. I was here one year ago, and everybody had masks on. And so when, um, in El Salvador, we're still wearing masks, and so I've learned how to read eyes. You know how when you always see people in their eyes, you try to read what they're, what they're feeling at a certain time. It's hard to preach just to eyes, and we had a time in, um, during El Salvador where they told us that we had to preach with a mask on. And that's tough, that's tough because I always preach three times on Sunday and so your voice is just wearing out during that time. So it's great to be able to see your faces and everything and to be with you. Um, I was here one year ago and um, the connection is that we knew the Burns when they were in in Bakersfield at Valley Baptist Church, but also my best friend that led me to the Lord when I was in high school moved to Casper. And uh, it's funny because after he led me to the Lord, his passion was fishing. And so he taught me how to trout fish, and I love to fish. And we would fish all the time up in the mountains of California. And his son's moved out to Casper, and he says, fishing in California is a joke compared to Casper. And I said, you're right, because I've come up every year for the last four years. And I've come here to to, to preach also at the same time. And I love coming, not just for the uh, fishing, but the people, and it's such a beautiful state. I think it's one of the best-kept secrets Someone was telling me, keep it a secret still. We don't want anyone else to know. Whenever I say it's a best-kept secret, so it's one of the best-kept secrets around. It's a beautiful state and beautiful people, so it's great to be with you again, and the other connection is like John was saying, you guys have brought down three or four teams to help us down uh, where we are. I live in El Salvador, and uh, that's a very tiny country in Central America, if you um, we're able to drive down there. You hit Mexico first, then Guatemala, and then El Salvador and Honduras are together. El Salvador is on the Pacific Ocean side. Honduras is on the Gulf of Mexico. And my wife and I moved there 36 years ago in September, and uh, we work in starting churches and evangelism. That's what our passion is. And uh, we live in a very receptive part of the world. It's very different from the United States. Uh, number one, people like to talk about Jesus. One of the hardest things when people come down, and and I see Roger is here, and you mentioned the others that had come in other times, and, and, and Amy and, and John, of course, um, and Frank and Lauren and uh, Vicki that have come on the trips. They can tell you that when you talk to people about the Lord, it's not a weird thing to them. Even when they say no, it's like, it's just how weird it is. You can just walk up to anyone and say, you mind if I take a few, a few minutes of your time to talk about Jesus? Oh, okay. It's just it's a normal thing. And you start to find that the strange place is the United States, because as I travel throughout the world, People aren't quite as hung up about talking about it as they are in this country. And so it's really fun. You have a fun time because people want to talk about the Lord, and um, God uses you. A lot of people tell me, well, what if I can't speak Spanish? That's not the requisite to go. You have to speak English. Now, if you can't speak English, it'll be more difficult for your trip because you'll have to get an interpreter to go that way. People like to hear English. So when you're there, and you have an, we always have an interpreter for you to go from English to Spanish, people listen more intently to what you're saying. And, of course, I always do it all the time just in Spanish, and I notice that when groups come down that that people will will pay more attention. And so um, the team that just came in Mexico was a tremendous blessing. I love this church, and I'll tell you why. One of my my main reasons is that when COVID started, um, we had to cancel all of our mission trips for the year 2020. And I thought, sure enough, in January we'll be able to start everything up again. Because from our church in El Salvador, we've sent out missionaries to Guatemala City, Guatemala, Managua, Nicaragua, San Pedro Sula, Honduras, Bogota, Colombia, um, San Jose, Costa Rica. And we wanted to start a church in Mexico City. And what we do is we send Salvadorians from our church in El Salvador to start these other churches. And um, one of the exciting things that's happening in the missions movement is um, as of five years ago, there are more missionaries sent out of Central America than the United States. And so you see the gospel is moving. The gospel is moving towards um, Spanish because you have way more believers in that part of the world. So it's an exciting thing to be a part of. And so we send out missionaries from El Salvador. And we wanted to send two families to Mexico City because Mexico City has 25 million people. It's the largest city in the Western Hemisphere. used to be the largest city in the world. Tokyo has passed it up. And there's just people everywhere, people everywhere. And so we um, wanted to start the church and we couldn't in 2020 because uh, of COVID. And I said we've got to do something. And so I was praying about it. And we had the March trip program, and everybody canceled, except Cross Point was the only church that didn't cancel. And um, you know, when you told me that six or seven were coming, or originally it was seven or eight, yeah, because Nate couldn't come at the last, so six. And so you, when you said six, I said okay, let's do it with six, because we got to start this church. And we got four other people to come along. And so um, we started the church from that um, evangelistic outreach. And it was was different. You know, I know for those who made the trip, you had to share the gospel with a mask on and everything. But here was the weird part. Once you started talking to people, it was just the same. And we had over 200 people make professions of faith just going to parks. We did nothing in mass. It was just one-on-one. Can you imagine that? Just talking to people one-on-one in the park. And over 200 people prayed to receive Christ. And a church was started. And you guys were a part of that. So I appreciate you as a church. And, and when Roger came with, um, um, with Tillman and John um, to San Miguel, you know, on that trip, that was when we were starting a church in San Miguel. And that church is doing great. And then the other teams that have come to Bogota. One thing about Bogota is that um, during COVID, the church actually grew because they were forced to do things online. And Colombia has been one of the most shut down countries in the world. They still can't have church services. They open and close, open and close, because they've had thousands of people die in, in Colombia, and so um, during that time, it allowed other people to connect with our church that was there. And if you go, some of you that made the trip to Bogota, go there. You'll see that we have more people there. So um, they're opening up next week, so they'll all be open when you come in January. So anyway, it's it's great what God's doing in our part of the world, um, just to show you how receptive people are to the gospel. We've seen over 360,000 professions of faith in our evangelistic outreaches and helped start 63 churches. And that's just because people are so wide open. And there's so many people that want to hear about the Lord. And so if you can go, you'll love it. It'll change your life. You have fun. We have a lot of fun. We just have a fun winning people to Christ. And people like Americans in our part of the world. And so they like to hear what you have to say and all those kind of things. So I hope you can come. Thank you for being a part of what we do, for praying for us and for everything, and I, I really appreciate that. When I was preparing for this morning on what to share, I have only a certain amount of messages in English because I do everything in Spanish and I translate some messages in English when I go to the States. And so I was looking at what I've said before here and I said, man, every time I've come I've preached on the new on the Old Testament. And so um, I don't like the Old Testament more than the New Testament. There is one thing I like about the Old Testament, the stories, is that... There's a difference between the way people think in the West and the way people think in the East. In the West, we think that history is just a line, a continual line. Everything's linear. And that's why in the West, many people believe stuff like we're getting better, we're improving, we're evolving, which is the most ridiculous belief that exists. Have you ever compared a Bach composition with a rap song? Have you ever come, I mean, the composers, is that, you're telling me we're getting better than the composers of Bach and Beethoven and all that? Or a painting, a realist painting of the Renaissance time with an abstract painting where someone throws a can of paint against a wall? And so, you know, but we believe, because we live in the West, that history's linear, that we're getting better. But in the Eastern mind, which the Bible was written in, it believes that it's cyclical. There's cycles. And that's why every story in the Old, in the old Testament talks about your reality, because nothing changes. Solomon is the smartest man who ever lived, right, after Jesus. And Solomon said, nothing is new under the sun. He says, as the water goes to the rivers uh, and out to the ocean, and the water comes back to the rivers, uh, so that's the way life works. It's a cycle. And these stories repeat, and they repeat over. And so when you read a story in the Old Testament, you can always see it speaking to you because their reality is our reality. It's just the... The names, and the names have been changed to protect the innocent. That's about the only thing that's different on it. But everything is cyclical. It's cyclical. And that's why in the East you have some dumb re- beliefs like reincarnation. But the Bible shows how these things repeat. The only thing that's not cyclical are the signs of the end times. So when the disciples come to Jesus, they say, what's the sign that you're coming back? And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you something that's not cyclical. I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen that's never happened in history. And I'm coming back. And one of the things he says, there's going to be plagues. And so you might think, well, we have always had plagues. Well, no, not really. We had the same plagues from the year Jesus said that until about 1970. The same plagues. Nothing was new. Zero. And I read an article in the 1960s, and not in the 60s, but it was written in the 60s by the World Health Organization that said, we will probably eradicate all diseases within 50 years. So by 2010, all diseases, you know why they said it? They'd come up with the polio vaccine. They had the tuberculosis vaccine. Um, they had vaccines for just about everything, and they also had antibiotics. And antibiotics were incredible, those of you who work in the medical field. So they said, we're going to eradicate all them. But from 1980 to 2010, and this would continue, but I, I found this map that showed it, an average of one new disease appears every year. This is unbelievable. This is the most unbelievable sign that is on the planet right now. Because you think about the last 30 years. Let's take 1990 to 2020. Think about the last 30 years. What do we have? New diseases. AIDS didn't exist before. Marburg, Ebola, swine flu, bird flu, West Nile virus, chikungunya, Zika, right? The SARS, mad cow disease. That's a weird one. But all these different diseases never existed, did they? Does everyone agree with me? And covid So when COVID started, I got excited because I said, Jesus is coming back. And I'm not trying to be negative, but there's no more coming because Jesus said it. He doesn't cause it, but he said it. And so when you see these things happening, you should say, whoa, the cycle's been broken. This is is new stuff. This is new stuff. Rumors of wars. You know, rumors of wars didn't exist in Jesus' time because there was no news. You see, if a war was a war, you knew it. It was right here. But he was saying the future... You'll watch the news, you'll hear the radio, and there's rumors of wars. And so that's another sign, and earthquakes. And I can go on and on, and the nation of Israel exists now. So I'm excited about the days we live in. And I like sharing about the Old Testament because it talks about our reality. And so I want us to see a story, my favorite story. I was surprised I'd never preached this here, but I love the story, which is the story of Esther. And Esther, the reason I like the story of Esther is because Esther had everything against her. Many of us say that God can't use us because. Now, she was an orphan twice. I don't know how many here have been orphans twice. She was orphaned because her mom and dad died. Then her cousin adopted her named Mordecai. And then there was a beauty contest from the king of Persia. And she won. She won. Because what happened, it meant that she had to go into the castle or the palace and be cloistered, separated from everyone. So she lost her new dad, twice. She's probably 15 or 16 years old, because that's usually when you got married. And she's 15 or 16 years old, and she's lost her family twice. She's all alone, and they're going to exterminate the Jewish nation. And basically what her adoptive father says, it all depends on you. And God used this girl, this young girl twice orphaned, to save the world, basically, and a lot of people say, well, God can't, I, I, I'm just not in the right place at the right time for God to use me. And I have a belief that if you're a believer in Christ, you're always, always in the right place at the right time. It says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What this means, just to make it real, tomorrow morning when you go to work, there's already stuff prepared for you. So tomorrow... If you're a believer in Jesus and you're living for him, you're in the right place at the right time. The problem is we don't act. What would have happened if Benjamin Franklin wouldn't have wanted to get wet? Do they still teach that in history, how he discovered electricity? Okay. Uh, Excuse me for saying that, but there's a lot of stuff they quit teaching in history. I love history, even though I was an engineer, but I love history. And, And so what would have happened if he didn't want to get wet? What would have happened if someone would have stopped Adolf Hitler before he became powerful? Or Osama bin Laden. What would have happened if Peter Parker would have killed would have stopped the thief that killed his aunt and his uncle in Spider-Man? You ever seen Spider-Man? Spider-Man's based on that. The whole thing's on that, that he feels this guilt because he didn't stop. And so the biggest problem we have in our lives is we're always in the right place at the right time, but we don't act. The, the great general Napoleon said that in every battle, major battle, there's a period of ten or fifteen minutes, that if you act the right way, you win. And I think that's the way life is too. The Greeks had a statue called Opportunity, and it was it had long hair in the front and was totally bald in the back, just the opposite of me. And so it was, and so this was the way Opportunity worked: is it came, you had to grab the hair. If you didn't, there was nothing to grab onto. And I think that's the problem. God wants to use you to save the world, and the world may be one person you know, or it may just be your family or someone like that. But we have to act when an opportunity is presented to us. So in this story. And I always tell the the kids in in El Salvador that the greatest stories ever written are in the Bible. Hollywood steals the stories and changes the names. For example, this story is a story of of a girl who loses her mom. How does every Disney movie start? Just about. Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, Finding Nemo, Bambi. They kill the mom. I mean, if you're a mom, stay away from Disney. It's dangerous, right? Moms and Disney don't mix, right? How many were those movies? I mean, I know the list is longer. And the reason that happens is it tugs at your heartstrings. Well, well, that's the story here. So this is an incredible movie. So every great story, like Esther, has a good guy and a bad guy, right? It has a story. So let me give you the whole story, and then we'll see how it applies to us. Okay, number one in this story, of course, the good guy is Mordecai or Esther, right? Mordecai is her adopted father. It's her cousin also. And the bad guy's named Haman, and Haman is a horrible bad guy. He is so wicked that he hates the Jews and moves the king of Persia to issue an edict or decree to, to exterminate the whole Jewish nation. And then the good guy, of course, is Esther. So let me read read chapter 3 of Esther just to get the context, and that will get us moving. Esther 3, verse 13. So now Haman has moved the king to issue an edict to exterminate the Jewish nation. It says, And the letters were sent by posts unto all the king's provinces, Now listen to the intensity of this. To destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish. It's it's not enough to destroy them. It's not enough to kill them. He wants to exterminate the Jewish race completely, wipe it off the face of the earth. And of course, the devil's behind this. And it says, all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people, that they should be ready against that day. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan, the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. So here's Esther. She has won the beauty contest. She's the queen of Persia, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. She's cloistered. We're going to see in a few minutes that she had not spoke to the king in 30 days. She does not know that her whole people are going to be exterminated. And so at this moment, Mordecai has to get the message to her so that she can do something. And she's going to hear the message, and he's going to say this phrase, which I'm sure you've heard before. He's going to say to Esther, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, or if I can make it more personal, and who knows whether you've been born for such a time as this. This is what I want to propose this morning. We're living in the greatest time of history. This is the greatest time because God loves you and he had you be born. Everything that's happened in your life to this point is that you were born for such a time as this. And God is looking for a group of people or one Christian that says, I am going to take advantage of the opportunity God has presented for me. Now, a lot of will say, well, I don't know. I'm not a very good speaker. I don't know what to say. And I've heard all the excuses because I've made the same excuses. And, of course, Esther, she had nothing going for her. So, so why did God use her? And this is what I've discovered. That in the Bible, God uses nobodies, people that you would say, how could they do anything great? And and the issue is never their intelligence or their eloquence or their ability. It's always one word, faith. It takes this much faith to believe that you can be saved, this much faith to believe that God can save your, your boss, your mom, your dad, your neighbor, but this much to believe that God can use you. And I believe God wants to use you to save the world that you're in. So, here is a girl that's trapped in a palace, just a young girl, twice orphaned, and she has to find out how she can rescue the condemned. And that's what I want to title the message, How to Rescue the Condemned. You and I are surrounded by people that are condemned spiritually on a daily basis. Do you remember what, what, what John 3, you know, you know what John three sixteen says, but you know what it says right after that in, in verse 18? It says, he that does not believe is already, does anybody remember what it says? Is already condemned. So tomorrow when you go to work, every workmate that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is already condemned. They will not be condemned. They're already condemned. Just like in this story, all the Jewish nation is already condemned because they've received the edict. And so God has placed you where you're at so that he can use you in every minute. Yeah, I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a movie called Sixth Sense. And in this movie, it's the story of a little boy that he sees people that nobody else sees throughout the whole movie. And so, as, as you go through the movie, you realize, I won't tell you the punchline in case someday you ever see it, but he, he goes through this whole movie seeing these people no one sees and he's talking to this guy all the time. And finally, he says to the guy, and he's always scared, he goes, it's because I see dead people. I see dead people. And I thought, man, he's just like a Christian. We see dead people all the time. People dead in their trespasses and sins. People that are Condemned. But the devil tries to work us into living into a fantasy world. He doesn't want us to see what's real. He wants us to live in this world where this is forever. We're just going to be here forever, and it's just we got to hang on to it. But he doesn't want us to see what's real. And what's real is we see dead people, dead in their, in their sins and trespasses, if they don't know the Lord and that are condemned. And so how can God use you and I to be able to save the world, basically? I think there's three things that you and I need that we can all have. Number one is we we have to sympathize. We we have to learn to sympathize. Someone asked me, Steve, what's one of the biggest things that's changed to you in the United States in the last, you know, 35, 36 years? And this is what I would say based on watching the news, based on seeing posts in social media, Americans are really mean, M-E-A-N, really mean People were not that mean before. E- even a, a Republican and Democrat wouldn't, wouldn't talk that way before. Someone on the left or the right wouldn't talk that way. But I've seen some of the most meanest things ever in my life. And, and it's sad because I understand if you don't know Christ, but why are a lot of Christians mean? I don't understand that. I've never understood that, 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 that mentality. And I think what's happened is, as we've isolated ourselves from other people, we've lost the art of sympathy. And it's such an important thing. It's interesting that it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, talking about you, but it's the same as Esther. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God to beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. So you and I are ambassadors placed on this earth. We're pilgrims. We're just passing through. And an ambassador is the highest rank that you can have in a foreign country. It's interesting that God chose the highest rank for you as a pilgrim passing through this world. And Esther's the same. Esther is Jewish, but she's an ambassador in the palace. And if you ever ask someone that's living in a foreign country who was the best ambassador, it's always someone who was sympathetic to the people. Sympathetic. And you don't see that. And I think that in this passage, you see what we need to be sympathetic. Let's read what it says. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes And went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. This is an incredible thing. Because here you have Mordecai, her adopted father. He's crying out in the streets. He puts on sackcloth. He rents his clothes. And Esther has no end idea. I think the reason many times we're not sympathetic is that the first thing we need is consciousness. Or to be conscious of what's happening around us. One of the reasons that we don't take advantage of divine opportunities is that we are unconscious of our surroundings. I have no problem with you know looking at your phone when you're in some kind of thing. I had to get over that. We have meetings all the time in El Salvador. I'm talking to the staff and they're all looking at their phones. And 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 so I just sound like an old fogey. You know, this meeting we're not going to look at our phones. But we've become so obsessed with I always call it the matrix. We're connected to the internet and to our phones that we don't know what's going on around us. And there's people around us crying out with a loud and bitter cry. They're lost. But we can get so connected into our world that we don't even know what's going on. So how can we sympathize? If I don't know why my boss acts the way he does, or she does, if I don't know why my neighbor does what they do, if I don't understand why, and I'm not conscious of their problem, I'll never sympathize. I don't care. You know, I grew up in an atheist home. If you want to meet people from the left, you meet one half of my family. My dad, who's who's not alive, he was military. He was to the ultra-right. My mom was a leftist atheist. So I grew up with both groups. So I have relatives that you wouldn't even want to come near. You wouldn't even want to eat with them. But it helped me to understand that just because a person doesn't agree with you doesn't mean they deserve to go to hell. We need to learn what other people are feeling and seeing, to sympathize with them. That's that's what Jesus came to do. He saw that you were separated from a holy God, and he says, I'm going to become like you so I can sympathize with you. I can stand in your shoes. I can understand what you're going through. I'm going to lose my best friend Lazarus so I can feel the feeling of that. I'm going to suffer hunger. I'm going to suffer every one of the emotions you can suffer because I want to be able to sympathize with your need. I, I wrote in, in my Bible right here where it says, he cried with a louder and a bitter cry. I asked myself this question, have you heard the louder and bitter cry of the condemned? They're crying out right now. But many Christians are too busy in their own little world waiting for the rapture while people are condemned. And I think it's a tragedy because God has these opportunities prepared every day, everywhere we go, and we miss it because we isolate ourselves in every one of those times. So the first thing we need to do is be conscious of what's going on. Here you have a guy that's out there on the streets, and he's crying out. And who's listening to him? Nobody. Nobody. Oh, I think about that all the time. Every time I read about a suicide, I just think, oh, that person was crying out before they died. Did anybody hear the cry? And, 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 you know, that's the number one thing that's increasing in this country is suicide. And, And there's a loud and bitter cry. It's interesting that he put on sackcloth. The reason you put on sackcloth in the Old Testament is because you wanted to feel physically what you felt emotionally. And, you know, sackcloth is made of goat's hair. And if you've ever used any kind of thing with goat's hair, it's very prickly. And and so they would put this prickly clothes on because they wanted to hurt, because their heart was aching. And he's aching inside, and he's crying out, and he wants someone to listen. And and, and no one will listen. it says, and he came even before the king's gate. I'm in verse 2. For none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You might go, well, why couldn't he go into the king's gate because he was wearing sackcloth? Because kings are a lot like a lot of dads. You know, you know how dads don't like to hear bad news, right? You know, you come home and and the mom or someone's going to say bad news about the cuz I have four kids so I heard bad news all the time. And it's like I don't want to hear that, right? Well, kings were the same way. The kings don't want to hear bad news. So if you have sackcloth on, you're not allowed in. Why? Cuz you're not bringing a happy uh, happy results. You're bringing something negative. That's why they had court jesters. They wanted to always be happy and think everything's good. We have TV, but they had court jesters and all that. And it's like, I don't want to know about that, what's going on. So he can't even come in. And it says in verse 3, And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You ever notice when there's really bad thing happens, people unite? Except the United States and COVID. You know, my whole life growing up, I'm 62 years old. My whole life growing up, whenever there was a national disaster, everyone united. Is the first time I haven't seen it. 911, united, right? And, and that's a sad commentary, by the way. But usually, people unite against a common bad thing. And so they're all united. And look at the intensity. They're fasting, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, and they lay in sackcloth and ashes. And verse 4 says, So Esther's maids... And her chamberlains came and told it her. They told her what was going on. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. It's interesting that the same word used for grieved in Hebrew is the same word used when Saul was killed with with, um, arrows. It says the archers injured him, and it's the same word for grieved. What it's literally saying is her heart broke when she heard it, because that's the second thing that has to happen for you to have any kind of sympathy is compassion. You have to have compassion. You have to feel compassion for what's happening. When Esther realizes what's going on, remember, before she doesn't know, so she can't help. Now she knows, and it just hurts her. One of the things that blows my mind about Jesus was his compassion. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. I believe God's looking on this earth for anyone that would have compassion for those that know the Lord. I don't want to talk to that person. They don't agree the same way as me. Who cares if they go to hell? That is the saddest commentary that can exist. We should have compassion to realize what someone else is feeling. And that's what she feels in this moment. She's grieved in her heart. But she needs one more thing to feel, to, to, to feel sympathy. It says, the queen was exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment, or clothing, to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him but he received it not. Now, the problem that Esther had is the problem that many of us have. We see a problem, and we might see it on the news, but if we don't understand what's really happening, we don't solve it the right way. This is what happens with Esther Esther sees that her adopted dad is dying and he's going through a horrible time and he's clothed in sackcloth. And what's her solution? Have you ever known a person, maybe one of you are this way, have you ever known a person? And I'm not going to say it's usually women, but okay, I'm not going to say anything. And so have you ever known a person that when they feel bad, they go shopping for clothes? You know, a lot of people do that. They, they, they put clothes on because clothes are an expression of, of, of who you are and how you feel. And so, you know, if I, see, if I see someone in green scrubs walking down, I know what that person does, right? Expresses or a police outfit or whatever. And so people clothe themselves trying to express who they are. But it never works to change your clothes clothes to change who you are. It's the other way around, right? And so many of us think that if we change the outside, we'll feel better inside. Like Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they thought, if we just made some nice clothes, we'll feel better about ourselves, right? And did it work? No. No. Does it work when a person's grieving to say, go to the Gap and buy some new clothes, go up, to, go, down to, you know, go up to Billings and buy some nice clothes and change? Of course it doesn't. Some people think that. I know a lot of people that will uh, buy dresses or regular clothes and they feel better at that moment. But it's, it doesn't help the problem. And that's the problem with her. She doesn't understand what's going on w- with the situation. So the third thing is comprehension, to understand what's really going on. Compassion without discernment produces ineffective solutions. So that's the last thing that has to happen. So see what happens here. Then called Esther to Fort Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. Here's the part where she's going to comprehend. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman, remember Haman's the bad guy, right, had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go unto the king and make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So that's the last thing. So let's sum up everything so it makes sense. The king of Persia, and they were considered to be like gods, issues a decree on X date the Jewish nation will be exterminated. Mordecai and all the other Jewish people realize that, and they're putting on sackcloth, and they're screaming on the streets, and it's a disaster. Mordecai says, I know we have an ambassador. We got Esther. Esther's there inside the palace. If I tell Esther, she'll fix it. So Esther only finds out he's wearing sackcloth, and she says, send him some clothes. He rejects the clothes. Ooh, I better find out what's really going on. So she finds out what's going on. And once she finds out what's going on, I'm sure Mordecai thought, okay, now something can be done in that moment. It's exactly the same way with you. God sees what's happening in the world. God hears the loud and bitter cry. How many remember when the Jewish people were in Egypt and they were slaves and it said the loud and bitter cry rose up to God? Read that in Exodus 3. What did God do when he heard the loud and bitter cry? Did God come down and do something? He sent Moses. What does God do when he hears the loud and bitter cry in your workplace, the place you study, or in your home? He sends you. He's looking for that one person that says, I get it. I'm going to do something about it. Many of you know this verse. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of of them whose heart is perfect toward him. He's looking for people like that. And who knows whether you've been born for such a time as this. So you have to sympathize. But then you have to do something else. Look at what it says in verse 10. So Esther speaks back to him. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. Now listen to what she says. And remember one more time, she's probably 15 years old. She's been orphaned twice. She's stuck in this place cloistered. And then you'll understand the pain she feels by what she says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death. Um, he hasn't called me. If I go in there without being called, he'll kill me. Except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. And I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. So let me just paraphrase it. Esther, you got to do something. If I do it, I'll probably die. That's what it basically says. And listen to what he responds in verse twelve. And they told him the Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to Esther, "Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews, because she's Jewish. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement, of deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows whether you are come to the kingdom?" for such a time as this. So it's interesting what Mordecai says because he shows that he believes in the Bible. He says, look, you don't speak up. And That's the next point, to speak up. You don't speak up. God can do it anyway. You know, Genesis 12. God's going to bless Israel whether you like it or not. All right? That's going to happen. But then he also says if you don't do it, you're going to be destroyed anyway. It's like a story I heard. I used to live in Louisiana. And... Uh, it kind of prepared me to move to El Salvador because southern Louisiana, the people that live there are called the Cajuns, and it's a, and it's a different culture. They speak French, a lot of them. It's Roman Catholic, almost completely just like Latin America, and, and it, just great people. It's just a great place to be, but they they have something in common with Wyoming. They love to hunt and to fish, but they don't hunt antelope, and of course, there's no antelope there, and, and they don't hunt elk, and they don't hunt moose. And, uh, but they hunt loggerhead turtles that weigh 100 pounds, nutria that are like big rats, crocodiles, and, and other animals and everything. But they hunt to survive. So one of the problems is in the old days is they would hunt with dynamite. And I don't know if you've ever hunted with dynamite. I hope you haven't. It's against the law. But, but it works. You know What happens is the dynamite blows up and all the fish from the concussion float up to the top. Yesterday we went to Sunshine Lake and I thought, I wish we had dynamite now. We, we only caught four fish out of that. When we got up there, we said, there's nobody here. I wonder why, you know, and the, and the water was way down in the reservoir, and um, we had a great time anyway. But anyway, they always tell these stories, the Cajuns, about Thibodeau and Boudreau. That, I don't know why they use those two names. Thibodeau and Boudreau. And Thibodeau was an avid fisherman, but he fished for survival, so he fished with dynamite. And Boudreau found out, well, Boudreau's his cousin, and Boudreau's a park ranger. And so Boudreaux finds that the Thibodeaux's fishing with diamonds. I don't care if it's my cousin. I'm going to catch him red-handed and take him to jail. So he comes up with his trap. He says, he goes, Thibodeaux, let's go out fishing. Come on, cuz, let's go out fishing. So they get in their piro. row That's what they call the kayaks, P-rows. You know, it must be the French word for kayak, maybe. But they go out in their piro row in the swamp, and they're right there in the middle of the swamp. And Boudreaux noticed that when they went out, it's weird. He has all his fishing equipment, but there's this big box under his chair where he's sitting. There's a big box. So they get in the middle of the lake and Thibodeau says to Boudreaux, you ready to fish, cuz? He says, sure, let's do it. So he just quietly opens up that box and takes out a stick of dynamite, lights the fuse and throws it into the lake. Boom! And all these fish come up. Get the net, get the net, get the net. And the ranger says, are you out of your mind? You're breaking the law in front of me. I don't care if I'm your cousin. I'm taking you to jail. You think you can just take me out here and do this? Is against the law. It says Thibodeau didn't say a word. He just sat there, didn't say a word. He just calmly went back to the same box, took the lid back off, and took a stick of dynamite and lit it. And he gave it real quick to Boudreaux. And he says, hey, cuz, are we going to fish or are we going to talk? Well, if you talk, you're going to blow up. You got to fish. Throw that dynamite out there in the water. And so I kind of think of that story when I think of this. I think Mordecai's saying, Esther, we're going to fish, we're going to talk. There's, there's a time in your, mo- your life you just got to talk. You, you got to speak up. And I know that's hard, especially if you're timid. No one's more timid than I am. My, my wife asked me out on our first date. I am a timid person by, by nature. And there was a moment in my life where I realized, Steve, you got to talk. You got to speak up. Sometimes a problem's so big, you got to say something. You, you, you just can't hang out in your own inner world and not say a word. There's a time to speak up. And you might say to me, well, poor Esther. It, the whole nation depends on what she says. This is a horrible thing. But, but I always think about it this way. What happened to Esther is nothing compared to us. You see, we're surrounded by people that are spiritually exterminated. It says in Luke twelve four, And I send you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Don't worry about COVID. It can only kill the body. That's all it can do. That's nothing if you're a believer. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after have cast hath killed hath power to cast into hell. I say unto you, fear him. That's the problem we have. We live in a world where we will go to work or go to school or go to our neighborhood and we'll be surrounded by people that have an edict against them. The wages of sin is, right, the soul that sins shall surely we have an edict against us. He that does not believe is already, is already, already condemned. And people are condemned. They have a spiritual edict against them. And if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, they will go to hell. Uh, my youngest daughter is, is five years younger than my three oldest kids, so she's a little bit different in the way she sees things. And she kind of went through that phase where she loves watching reality shows like these weird shows on discovery and stuff like that. I go, what are you watching? Oh, this is a show about so and so, and I go, you know, that's not really real, you know. And well, Daddy, what would you do if you had a reality show? And I, you know, I always ruined the party because I said, if I had a reality show, I would ask God permission. I would ask God permission. This is my reality show because my reality show would be real, and my reality show would put a camera, a camera on the entrance of hell. It would change everything. It would change everything. Because Christians would no longer live in a fantasy world. This is all there is. And we're just hanging in here to get comfortable and just love each other. They would say, o'clock uh, 5 o'clock news. 5 o'clock news, 10 million people died from a war in COVID, but that's not the biggest story. Um, you know, 10, most of those people went to hell. 6,300 and some people die every hour. According to conservative statistics, 5,000 don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And four more minutes during this service, one, 5,000 people went to hell. Oh, why is he talking about it? Because it's real. It's real. I'm talking reality. That's what's real. And I think it's going to be a crying shame to go to heaven one day and realize, man, how did I miss all that? How did I miss that? We need to be plugged into reality. And Jesus came to lift that edict. It, it says in Colossians 2.14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, the wages of sin is death which was contrary to us. And Jesus took it out of the way of him. He took the edict, and he nailed it to the cross. And he calls you and me to sympathize and speak up. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to be intelligent. All we need to do is be willing to speak up. Who knows whether you've been born for such a time as this. And I finish up with just a few verses here. Look Look at how this finishes up. This is incredible. This is incredible because nobody would give five cents for Esther. She's just some poor little Jewish girl, 15 years old probably, twice orphaned, poor little girl. What can she do? She saved the world. I don't have to remind you that Jesus was Jewish. What happens if all the Jews are exterminated? And she stepped up to the plate. But what she had to do is incredible. Look at how it ends. This is incredible. Verse 15. Then Esther bade them return. Mordecai hit this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Remember, Shushan is the capital of Persia. And fast ye for me. Now, now one side note here. What are the only two books of the Bible that never mention God? Not even once. Never mention God. One of them is Song of Solomon. That's one of them. Song of Solomon. What's the second one? But God's everywhere. And I love it because, see, many times you don't think God's at work or God's in your study place, but he's there behind the scenes. They never fasted if they weren't praying, so we know that they were praying. But listen to what she says. This girl's unbelievable. She says, and fast you for me, and neither eat nor drink, three days, night or day. Wait a second. Three days, night or day. Wait a second. Where have I heard that before? Three days, night or day. Let me show you a passage that's really crazy. Well, just listen to it because of time. Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. The Jewish people had a belief that on the third day, God would raise things up. We think it started with the resurrection, but it was already a belief. It says in Hosea 6.1, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for He has torn, and He will heal us. He has smitten, and He will bind us up. After two days will He revive us. In the third day, He will raise us up, and we shall live in His sight. And so I think Esther is saying, wait a second, I was taught when I was young, not in Sunday school, of course, in synagogue, Then on the third day is when God would do it. So let's fast and pray for three days. And then she says these words. She says, I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. What does the devil do with that? What does the devil do with people that are willing to die? Nothing. He runs I believe in that very moment, if I could see what was happening behind the curtains, if I could see what was happening in the angelic world, at that moment when she said that, the devil and the demons took the first bus out of town. Because the devil can do nothing with a person that is willing to die. And that's the last point. It's a sacrifice. Oh, I can't talk to my boss because he might laugh at me. Oh, I can't talk to my mom because she might get mad at me. When we say that, this is what we're saying. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to die to myself. Jesus said, if any man will come after him, let him deny his self and take up his cross. And many things we don't do because we don't want to sacrifice. I used to love to watch the movies of the gladiators in the days of the Roman Empire. And you know, those great gladiators and the rebellions like Spartacus, they never overthrew the Roman Empire. So who did? It was the most powerful military machine that ever existed. When Daniel describes it in, in, in Daniel and his vision in, in, in Daniel 7, in Daniel 2, he, he describes this monster that just crushes everything. And you know how it was brought to its knees? By Christians that were willing to die. You see, there is no greater force on this planet that people that love others are willing to deny themselves for them. A radical Muslim is willing to die to kill others. A radical Christian is willing to die to save others, and that's all the difference in the world. And Esther says, If I perish, I perish. And so you have this group of nobodies in the early church. They come out and say, they even had a group that would take care of the people that were sick, and many of them died where they took care of the sick. When when people would abandon their older parents because on the streets, they would pick them up and adopt them. When babies were born that had deformities and the Romans abandoned them, the Christians would pick them up. And, and they would take on all these people. And that compassion and that love melted the empire, and that big monster was brought to its knees by the greatest force on this earth, which is love where people are willing to sacrifice. The devil cannot do anything with that. And she says, if I perish, I perish, I will save the nation of Israel. Yeah, but you didn't study in seminary. Do you even have a college degree? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you believe what the Bible says. Now, here's the problem with why we're not willing to die. Because we just love ourselves too much. I mean, I'm just being honest about it. One of the saddest things to me about modern Christianity in the United States is how it's really been pushed that the most important thing you need to do is to love yourself. When I mean, Jesus is real clear. You're to deny yourself. You're to love others first. And that's a powerful thing. Now, when this happened, when she was willing to die... What power did that unleash from God? The greatest power in the universe. The greatest power on this earth is love, what I just said, sacrificial love. But what's the greatest power in the universe? Okay, let's say China, Russia, and the United States say, we hate Steve Kern. We're going to take him out into the middle of nowhere. We're going to take him to uh, Powder River, Wyoming. Have you ever driven between Shoshone and Casper and stayed awake? Have you, have you done both of those things? That's tough, man. It's tough. So I love the state. I'm not trying to, to hate on the state. California's worse. They got I-5. But you take them out into the middle of nowhere, and we take Steve out there, and China drops every nuclear bomb on my head. And then Russia drops every, because I think we saw a piece of Steve, every nuclear bomb. And the United States drops every nuclear bomb on my head. That's the greatest power, right? No. God says, resurrected. Resurrected the resurrections an incredible power. That's what Paul said. And and I finished the message praying this for you. This is my prayer for you because this was Paul's prayer. Paul says this, I pray that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Now notice it doesn't say what is his power. It doesn't say what is his great power. What does it say? What is the exceeding greatness of his power to word who believed according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. And whenever I have a conversation and share my intimate thoughts with someone, I always say the only thing I want to see the rest of my life is resurrection power. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. He, he didn't want to live for all this silly power of this world. We were talking yesterday when we were fishing about Why do some of these multi-billionaires just not retiring fish or hunt or whatever? And we were talking about that. And what you have to realize is people, when they finally get a lot of money, the next step is power. They want power. Well, if you try to get power on the earth, you're never satisfied. You never have enough power. You're never happy. You remember what Alexander the Great did after he conquered the whole world? He broke down and cried. He says, I have no nations to to conquer. And he died when he was just a kid. I don't even think he made 30 years old. He was consumed with alcohol and all the horrible things he did. Earthly power will never satisfy you. So why as Christians do we play silly games to have more earthly power? when we can have resurrection power. We have access to the greatest power, and I'll tell you why. Because to have resurrection power, you need two requisites. Number one, faith. And I know all of you believe in that because you're Christian. You know We believe that we, in the resurrection. We, we believe in that. But the second requisite is the reason that most Christians never experience that power. Because there's a real nasty requisite for resurrection. What's the nasty requisite you have to do to be resurrected? You have to die. And in the worst funeral to attend is your own. But Paul was powerful because he says, I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. You guys know all those passages. He, he, he told us, no, deny self, love others, sacrifice for others. You want to see power, or do you just want the silly imitations of this world? What a waste of time when you can experience the greatest power in the world. Most timid person you ever meet, Steve Kern. But God put me under conviction. I've got to share the gospel. First time I went on visitation, back in the days when they did visitation. And I go out on visitation. And usually I would go with another guy, and he would speak, and I would just listen. Say, well, I'm just going to go and pray. I'm, I'm not going to talk. I, I can't talk. I'm an engineer. I just look at the ground. I can't even talk to people, you know. And so I would go every time I'm just looking. I'm not against engineers. I used to be an engineer. So I have a right to criticize my own. So that's just the way it goes. And so anyway, I go out all the time. And then one day someone said, you got to go out with your wife. Oh, man, what am I going to do? So we go into this house, and we talk to this guy. And I shared the gospel in the most bumbling, ridiculous way. And the whole time, the guy was holding back laughter. And I finished, and he didn't get saved. And I was changed. Because I said verses I never knew that I could say. And I realized at that moment, God is alive. You see, if God never works through you, it's just a dead, stupid religion. That's all it is. You just come to church, and, hey, i got to come to church, because my parents said I've got to come to church, so I'm going to listen to it. It yeah, was a cool message, and I laughed a few times. But when God works through you, you know he's alive. He resurrects. He's powerful. He can change the world. And he's looking for people that believe and they're willing to die. The reason that we hold our peace is that we don't know what to say. We don't want to die. I'm not talking physically. I'm saying to self, they might laugh at me. They might reject me. Oh, I know. You have to die. You see, when you're dead, it doesn't make any difference that they're making fun of a dead man. Make fun of the old Steve Kern if you want. I don't care. I know what a disaster he is. But when we're trying to prop up the old man, I want power, I want money, I want all this silly stuff, it's a disaster. Who knows whether you've been born for such a time as this. I do. You've been born to save the world. Maybe the world's just your mom. Maybe it's just someone at, at school. Or maybe it's just someone that you know in your neighborhood. But God wants to use us to do great things. And I believe that with all my heart. It isn't a question of if you can do it, because you can't do it, but it is how big's your God. Can He do it in spite of you? He can do it in spite of me. I know He can do it in spite of anybody, because I'm a disaster. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us clearly. And I thank you for the examples of the Esters of this world. That no one in the world would give her five would give five cents for. But she saved the world because she was willing to believe you and also to die for you. And I thank you, Lord, that you use us daily, that you love us so much that you don't only save us, but that you use us to do great things. Thank you so much for Cross Point Baptist Church and for their commitment to missions and their commitment to the community. I love this church and I thank you for them, Lord. But I pray that you would continue to raise up people that are willing to die for the cause of the gospel so that others could know you before this world ends. We know you're coming back soon. We see all the signs, Lord. Help us to be busy about your business and not our own business. Help us to die to what we want to do and do what you want to do. And I pray that every person in this place could experience the power of the resurrection. I thank you that we experienced it when we were saved. But I pray that we could experience it on a daily basis. And I pray, Lord, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray you touch their hearts so they could be saved. In Jesus' name.